0: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
1: Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com.
2: Hello and welcome to Borderlines. Today's guest is Warda Shazadi Megan, an immigration lawyer in Toronto and the founder of Landings Law. Warda has launched a charter challenge against essentially Canada's ban on Islamic adoptions. In brief, Canadian immigration legislation states that adoptions that can lead to immigration or that are recognized under Canadian immigration law must create a legal parent-child relationship and sever the pre-existing legal parent-child relationship. Many Islamic countries have adoption or guardianship regimes based on kafala law by which adoptive parents become the sponsor or guardians of a child, but the pre-existing legal parent-child relationship is not severed. As a consequence, adoptions from many Muslim countries are not recognized under Canadian immigration law. This is important not just for people who are uh, applying to bring a relative who they have adopted over directly through the adoption immigration process, but also for families that adopted a child in an Islamic-majority country where kafala might apply and who are immigrating as a family. It is also accordingly important that their representatives understand Where this issue may arise as well. Small bit of housekeeping we are now posting videos of the podcast to YouTube. And finally, if there's any topics you would like us to cover in future episodes, please do email me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. got a fascinating case that I saw. What was it? So Justice Semi said can proceed, basically.
3: Yeah. So we recently got a court order um, saying it's good to go.
2: And it is a, is it a charter challenge or?
3: It's a charter challenge.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So a charter challenge on how, and you can tell me if this is an oversimplification, but how IRCC doesn't recognize kafala relationships which is a form of muslim adoption i don't know if that's a huge oversimplification of what kafala is but
3: yeah that's right in a nutshell um the regulations say that so to back up a little bit uh, regulations cite what adoption is and the way that the um, definition of adoption is set out Eliminates kafala adoptions. And so kafala is a form of adoption within Islam, but um, uh, adoption can still be civil and just based on a kafala model. So, for example, like, you know, Canadian law, common law may have Christian roots, but it's not Christian law. And so, in the case of our clients, there is a kafala adoption that took place in Pakistan, and then they got a court order. Uh, recognizing that adoption so they have a guardianship order and a court order but kafala is basically a concept in islam that says you're like a caretaker and the idea in islam is um, you don't ever fully sever ties with your biological parents largely that's symbolic so even if the child's parents have passed away, they're at an orphanage, and we have clients like this in our office, um, they're still under kafala adoption because, in theory, they can still keep the last name of the family, they still have inheritance rights, and they're always connected to their birth parents.
2: Yeah. So let's, let's backstep a little bit and start with what IRCC or Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada and the immigration legislation in Canada considers to be an adoption that's acceptable for immigration purpose and then go into the um, FALA and where, where the issue arises and why it doesn't, doesn't, it isn't a square that fits neatly into the square of what Canadian immigration legislation wants.
3: Yeah. So, uh, under the regulations an adoption has to be one that's Recognized in Canada and uh, is severed severs the ties between their the biological parents and the adopted child. So it's this concept of a severance, and um, our A tips have shown us that this was really brought into place to kind of target Kavala adoptions because they don't sever that tie between the parents and the child. And so our challenge is um, saying that this lack of recognition violates their freedom of religion rights, it violates the quality rights, and it violates security of the person. We may add additional charter grounds um, as the case goes on, but uh, our clients had no other way of adopting uh, their children. So this was the only form of adoption available to them in Pakistan, and it's one that's not recognized in Canada, and we're bringing this challenge to either have a purposive interpretation of severance In the symbolic way that it's meant to be um, interpreted under Pakistani law, or um, have a reading down of this provision or striking out saying that uh, it's not constitutionally firm.
4: Steve, maybe if you want to do a screen share of section three sub two of the regulations, because I think that that's where the definition comes from. Yeah, that's right. Uh, um, I've actually seen a number of cases recently um, that are similar, not based on kafala, but um, I'm just trying to remember. I think that the case that I was dealing with was a Cambodian case where it was um, that the adoption was considered. It was like a an issue of a simple adoption as opposed to a full adoption, and in that in that jurisdiction. You can only do a simple adoption if the child is above the age of seven, like it's just a legal bar. Um, And so because the adoption did not occur before the age of seven, and it could not have occurred because the person who had adopted was a single woman. And so her singleness prevented her from adopting the child, but she was the de facto parent. For the entire lifetime of the children they were essentially orphaned and so like de facto orphaned the parents were not deceased but they were not parenting and so again this is another example of these types of parenting relationships so it seems to me that this challenge would have substantive impact for lots of countries not just um like muslim families but also that this definition It requires a severing of the legal parent-child relationship but that's assumed that the adoption laws in other countries are going to mimic Canada's laws when in fact like adoptions occur all over the world that create true binding legal relationships and just because they don't exactly match up with Canadian adoption laws that suddenly Canada will say well that's not a parent in terms of our immigration definition so This has a very broad implication.
2: Is it a Hague Convention requirement, the severing of the child-parent relationship?
3: Uh, So it's not a Hague Convention requirement. The Hague recognizes adoptions that sever ties and don't sever ties. But um, Canada, there is a Hague connection because Canada has raised the argument that Pakistan is not a signatory to the Hague Convention. And so um, there are, you know, we do have an expert on that's going to be commenting on the Hague and... Um, but the Hague does have, it ha- there's a provision in the convention that says um, it's, in, it's really governed by the best interest of the child and the best interest of the child, uh, and, like, belie this concept of uh, recognition of family's continuity. And it's, what's interesting is that um, the Hague, so kafala like a type of open adoption, right? So it's like, you still know who your parents are, you can potentially have connection to them, whether it's symbolic. Um, But in Canada, all throughout, there is a um, general consensus within the adoption uh, community that it's open adoptions that are in the best interest of the child. And the Hague says, what's in the best interest of the child is what should be recognized in theory. That's the spirit of the Hague Convention. So that's one of our arguments that Hmm. this should actually be recognized because even domestic adoptions are now um, the default tends to be open adoptions from what we understand.
4: Well, that's brilliant because who said that the idea of completely severing that, that tie, I mean, the, in the case that I have been working on, what they said is the difference between a simple and a full adoption was that they could still inherit from the biological parent and that that was what meant that they were not legally severing the tie. And so that essentially, Canada would not recognize the parental relationship because of the potential to inherit. And I don't understand why Canada would want to preclude the, the adoption just because they had left open the, the ability to potentially inherit from those other parents or why, as you said, you would, you know, why we would try and create this law that would try and fully sever any connection to the biological parent because to try and interpret the Hague Convention in a way that seems to go so far against the Convention on the Rights of the Child where understanding where they come from and who their biological parents are does seem to be so much in support of their best interests and development and all of that sort of thing.
2: But the yeah. kafala prohibition goes broader, right? Because it doesn't get into even the facts of whether there's been a severance or not. Like I think, Wardy, you were saying that even in the cases of children who are like raised in orphanages um, where the parents may even be dead, kafala because it's still the regime that's used. It's just an automatic either nationwide, I guess if the country uses kafala or religion wide ban on those types of adoptions, regardless of the facts.
3: Yeah, that's right. So I have a niece, for example, who was adopted from an orphanage, parents, completely unidentifiable, um, was left uh, at the doorstep of this foundation. The foundation took her in and put her in an orphanage. My sister um, had adopt, has adopted her and um, had to go through the U.S. to get that adoption recognized. And then, um, and then now she's here in Canada. But It's as you say, like it's it's an automatic ban, and a lot of the cases that we have in our office where we see the rejection letter, it's there's no engagement with the facts. With one exception, they do sometimes um, take it upon themselves to consider humanitarian and compassionate grounds or de facto sponsorship, Mm -hmm. um, and they can waive that, but it's still at the discretion, and you know it really depends on the officer and. There's just something inherently so uh, objectionable in the denial of bringing your child here, depending on how, the system through which they were adopted, especially if you don't have another system to rely on. And so, I think the I think just anyone who hears about this case that's not in the immigration world. So we have really great um, co counsel from uh, the National Council of Canadian Muslims and Munzner Slot and Lensners is representing the Canadian Council of Muslim Women. And when we approached them with this case, we wanted public interest parties to join because there might be a settlement in the case, et cetera, and the mootness issues. And when I explained the facts of the case, they were like, wait a minute, like, I don't understand. Like what, it just is so offensive so um, to sign that case uh, that, yeah, I just, I, and it's interesting because with the exception of one case in Quebec, which had a very different factual record, there hasn't been a challenge to it. And the law has been on the books since 2005 or six. And then uh, they began implementing it through a policy, uh, country-specific policy in 2013. And so, you know, it's 11 years, at least, that adoptions have been halted. And so we have cases where we have clients in Canada who, like, the husband's here the woman is in Pakistan with this orphan child. And just because of the blatant application or like the bald application of the regulation, they they can't they can't come here. And they have trouble getting visitor visas and temporary resident permits because they can't show that they're going to leave at the end of their stay, which
0: oh they won't.
2: God, yeah, yeah. well, right. and also in the temporary context, there's no HNC.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: so if the resolution that IRCC has proposed in the permanent context is, oh, well, you might be able to use humanitarian and compassionate that's been removed from the visitor uh context
4: well you could bring what? a trp but those have like such a like laughably low chance of success um
2: and it'll be slower yeah so yeah. is the obstacle like I was reading some a tips about this where it seems like the federal government was almost trying to blame the provinces like what where is the from what you've seen I'm sure you've done like I mean, you said you've done a tips probably way more detailed than what I've done. Um, what is the, uh, what is the, what is preventing change in this area?
3: So we are hoping to get more through, uh, cross-examination evidence because we actually have a very incomplete picture, but from what we can tell, it looks like, um, not all of our tips have come back yet, but, um, what it looks like is the Fed saying it's a provincial limitation. Some provinces have agreed, some have not. There also seems to been have been a meeting um, between the feds and the provinces and territories, where which seems to have been led by the federal government. But we really do need more information to understand like what came first. Um, and not all the provinces apparently have banned. And so it, there's just seems to be a lot of patchiness that we're still working to understand. Um, at one point in the ATIPs, uh, Pakistan said it was oh, sorry. Canada said it was Pakistan that wasn't allowing adoptions. But then the High Commissioner has come out and said, like, that's not true. That's not what happened. So we really are still at the point of trying to figure out what the issue is. In the ATIPs, they've cited concerns about um, trafficking and mm-hmm. the best interest of the child. And then there's also an illusion, and they very highly redacted. Um, reference to terrorism and so we actually don't know how all of this comes together so I can't actually say um, oh
4: I need you to back me up on that the (sighs) trafficking one so the idea is The concern is about taking children away from biological parents without the proper consent. That's the stated fear. I
3: believe that would be it, yeah. They haven't really fleshed it out because we're still at a pretty preliminary point uh, in the case because we've had several motions. Um, So the case has been going on since 2002, but uh, there have been several motions uh, at a preliminary stage. So we've just kind of gotten to the point where we'll start to see more evidence. But that seems to be our... Interpretation of the uh, concern, which is that, you know, if you have multiple parents, potentially biological and adopted and the biological parents still have a claim to the child, maybe the concern is, well, the adopted parents will bring over the child and the child will try to go back and bring over the adopted uh, uh, biological parents. But we have like section 117.90 for those types of situations. So I'm not buying it.
4: (laughs) Yeah, me too. But also like the, the evidentiary onus on the adoptive parent of trying to like track down the biological parent who like by their very nature is somebody who has abandoned that child or to prove their death, you know, some of these fact patterns like you know, for the niece who has been literally dropped at a doorstep, you know, like to try and produce that sort of line of evidence, like, okay, here's who the biological parents are, here is a proof that they have consented to the adoption, that they're agreeing to sever those ties. Like those are impossible factual
3: So we have that in our case. So <laughs> it's, we have that and yet still they haven't um granted the adoption and there's another case out of Lisa Rosenblatt's office um where she's she also had like it's a parent who doesn't want a parent and one ch- one parent dies the, the lead parent dies the other parents kind of not in the picture is happy to provide an affidavit I will never try to come to Canada I have no uh intention on continuing the parent-child relationship and so we have that in our case we know other counsel has submitted that in their case and still they have to rely on like a highly discretionary form of, um, of sponsorship. It's just, it's not right.
4: Maybe you can walk us through the charter argument. Like, are you doing this on a section seven, uh, section 7 challenge, on a section 15 challenge? How are you going about this?
3: Yeah, so it's a section 2A, um, seven and 15. So the section 2A argument is um, that these, So, the the children in this case are quite religious. They're Ahmadi Muslims. And uh, the clients actually were really insistent. Like, they were very offended that their adoption wasn't recognized. And you don't usually get clients like that. Like, they just, most clients just want um, a resolution for their case. But these clients are quite devout. And uh, there's a section in the Quran that says, uh, biological ties could never be severed and how you interpret severance is, you know, uh, something that's open to interpretation and, and, and obviously the confines of the law. But these clients believe that it's their religious um, right to, to conduct their family relations in a way that is compliant with their religious convictions. There's obviously a direct connection to Islam and the Quran on this specific prohibition, and so um, of not severing ties between the parents and the children. So we're arguing that um, this is an expression of their faith and not allowing them to live in accordance with their faith, especially when it complies with the law, otherwise is a violation of their freedom of religion. We're also arguing that- I have to
4: admit that I had to look up section two A. of the- (laughs) 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 Yes. Um, so freedom of conscience and religion. So um, you yeah. don't see many charter challenges under this no, section. No, exactly. Why wrong? Okay, so that's super interesting.
3: Yeah. So that's the first one, and I think the bulk of the argument here will really be on Section One. So um, in all of the freedom of religion cases, it's a pretty low engagement threshold. So it says an infringement of Section Two A of the Charter is established where. The applicant sincerely believes in a belief or a practice that has a nexus with religion. So there's obviously a sincerely belief, a held belief in our case um, because of the facts. And then it has a nexus with religion because that's what they believe about a parent, a biological parent-child relationship. And the second part of 2A is that it has to uh, impugn, the, the measures have to interfere with the applicant's ability to act in accordance with their religious belief or um. Uh, or their religious expression in a way that's not trivial or insubstantial. In this case, they're practicing Muslims. They can't be with their family members. Um, They don't want to seek a severance of ties from their biological parents, even if one was available to them. Right. And they are now being separated. So the mom is here and the kids are in Pakistan. And so it's the interference with their religious freedom is not... And the mom's religious freedom as well is not something that's trivial and um insignificant. So oh,
4: that doesn't a, thing. Yeah. yeah,
3: yeah. the section two engagement, like in all of the cases, the bulk of the work really happens in section one. So it'll be really important for us to see what the government's arguments are and the justifications that yeah. come
2: out. I don't know if we've ever explained section one of the charter on the podcast, but in super brief, it's a breach of, in this case, freedom of religion could still be constitutional or justified if the government could show a compelling objective and that the breach is minimally impairing. And then I think the third is just the balance of convenience uh, under something called the Oaks test.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to Quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com.
3: Yeah, exactly. So the government can um, successfully defend the case if they can show that even if the kafala limitation under Regulation Three Two is um, justified, and the, the exact wording is justified in a free and um, democratic society, democratic society yeah. yeah, and so that raises, um, you know, what is acceptable, have they looked at minimally impairing mechanisms, and the thing that's really um, interesting for our argument here is that the United Kingdom, New Zealand, Australia, and the United States all allow kafala adoptions to Mm. be recognized. And so, if those are countries that are signatories to the Hague Convention, we're signatory to the Hague Convention, it can be recognized there. Why can't it be recognized? There, obviously, those are our allies that have the same kind of concerns about human trafficking and anything else that the government has so far cited, But they've been able to find a mechanism to do it, and. Um, you know, so obviously they're more minimally impaired, impaired. Yeah,
2: those were uh, those comparator countries were really relevant in that recent citizenship by descent uh, overturning in the Ontario yeah. Superior Court. So yeah, yeah, we're a what, which are the provinces that do allow Kefala um, so or have said that they don't object anyway? We
3: don't have a province by province. Um, we have an expert that's doing that right now. So I don't actually have a province by province. Yes or no. But I believe Saskatchewan and Alberta um, will issue no objection letters. Um, and
2: about... even there, in those cases, the federal government still won't allow it because of the IRPA?
3: Yeah. So um, in those cases, so I don't have any Alberta cases, but I have a Saskatchewan case and the government hasn't issued a no objection letter for because of the way that the adoption was carried out. But for the Alberta case, we were just talking to Michael Green yesterday, and he has a case in Alberta. Um, the government won't issue a no objection letter in some cases. The village child is actually here, but immigration won't give a TRP until there's a no objection letter. So it's like a chicken and egg, a
5: little
3: bit. But if they do issue a no objection letter, um, they can often be recognized uh, as de facto dependents, um, and so that's right. the that a lot of lawyers have been taking. But I think the really interesting thing that I've been seeing in a couple of cases and And um, just talking to some colleagues, there's been this consideration of bringing uh, uh, an action for uh, enforcement of a foreign judgment. So a lot of these cases will have a foreign judgment on adoption. I don't know the details, I don't practice in this area, but um, the idea is to get a Canadian court to recognize that adoption, and there have been a number of cases in Alberta that have had that. And then once once the court recognized the adoption, I think potentially canada could be more comfortable an immigration officer could be more comfortable but that's just like a lot of steps and still
4: but i actually have i've been consulted by another lawyer it's not a kafala adoption but again it's in the same um area i don't remember the facts super clearly but she did get a domestic adoption it's a very complicated fact pattern but even then um, Canada IRC said that they weren't satisfied that it was that it met the test. And so, um, so again, it's just it's so many steps, and often, um, you know, just putting people through these years, I think it's it's um, it's overlooking the underlying constitutional issue. And so I like that you're actually going to the source yeah. and being like, fine, the fact that there is like a 13 step remedy that is available only to the quite wealthy <laughs> and very savvy, um, you know, is not, is not the answer. So you've, you've talked us through the two a argument. So can you give us like a brief, um, synopsis of the seven and 15 arguments that you're intending to do?
3: Yeah. So, um, the seven argument is a security of the person argument. So, um, section seven says that everyone has a right to security of the person and they can't be deprived of that security of the person, um, unless that deprivation is in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. And so, um, the gist of the argument here is that, uh, the prolonged separation between the mom and the kids violates her security of the person. There's been all of these like practical impacts to this family. It's been very expensive for them. I'm probably like the third lawyer they have. Um, they've just it's not a well-off family and like the amount, the toll that this case is taken on them is, is not insignificant. And so
4: even developmentally, I imagine, for the kids. Yeah, like there's um so the case
3: is public. So the the mom did a interview with her daughters, and um she had these like really beautiful anecdotes of how they still try to stay together. So the, the mom has a biological daughter who is in Canada, and then she's two adopted daughters in Pakistan and an adopted son. And the biological daughter and the two adopted daughters and the mom will like all shop on WhatsApp for wedding dresses and they'll like shop online and like how they've kind of tried to maintain normalcy. But it's really, it's really devastating to see that they're in this like very critical period of development where they're navigating the world for the first time. This family um, has been trying to find caregivers for these girls in Pakistan and what they've done is... Um, hired basically a housekeeper who is there during the hours when they're not in school. And so, should they basically like have uh, child, like, they have to pay for childcare uh, because they can't be reunited with their family. So, there have been a lot of like practical implications for this family that are um, contributing to this argument. And then, the most obvious principle of fundamental justice is that it's arbitrary. Um, it's not proportional to, um, you know, what the government is trying to, uh, establish. And there's so many other mechanisms specifically in the other countries that we see are, that are implemented that could be used to, um, reach the same aims. And so that's in a nutshell, the section seven argument, mm-hmm. the section 15 argument is really interesting, um, to me because it's it can be looked at as like a streamlined argument where we are saying that they're not being, so section 15 says that everyone has a right to equal treatment under the law. Um, And uh, you know, that has to be both on its face equal or, and or it has to be um, the impact of that law can't be discriminatory. And so we're saying equality, Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So we're saying that, you know, everyone may be, (laughs) barred by Kabbalah adoption but in practice it's going to be like in our client's case it's the Pakistani Muslims and um, we have an expert that looks at when this law came into uh, when the policy excuse me came into effect and it was a package of um, uh, changes in policy under the previous government the previous federal government it came around the same time as a ban on uh, niqab's it came around the same time as um, potentially uh, rolling out the Barbaric Cultural Practices Act, which targeted Muslims. And so this is a part of a broader package. And um, it certainly perpetuates stereotypes against Muslims, against um, Pakistani Muslims. And the grounds are national origins, so they're being discriminated against because they're Muslims, and sorry, they're Pakistanis, and they can't get um, a different form of adoption also because they're Muslims. So um, the the
4: fact that there's terrorism, uh, like concerns that are coming up yeah. in this context too, is like really, really.
3: Yeah. So we want to see what that piece of the case is. Obviously we've just had this reference to terrorism and a huge amount of redactions, um, but it certainly perpetuates that stereotype, right? Like, I don't know what a child from an orphanage in Pakistan, like how that child could contribute to terrorism. But like I'd like to see the evidence and like where we're trying to go with this. But it is like deeply offensive. Um like it's a minute. It's like like
4: are you making the section 15 argument for <laughs>
3: yeah. Um we're also we've raised family status um because historically there's been a lot of um discrimination against adopted children and um, non-conventional nuclear family status so um, this I is a, in the context of indigenous adoptions and ind- indigenous families it's existed in the context of um, same-sex relations and just like there was a whole set of examples where if you're not husband wife you know children in a nuclear family then you have the laws um, that 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 you know trip you up and that you're um, discriminated against so we're Arguing those grounds after Burquist, Stephen, the case that you just mentioned, the Ontario decision that came down in, in December 2023. Um, I'm also really intrigued and interested in looking at whether we can make an intersectional argument. Um so it's it was really encouraging what the decision said about like the grounds interacting and um how that impacts the applicant. So here they are. Uh, Muslim, Pakistanis, you know, uh, so th- that that interaction of those two grounds might be um, an avenue that
4: we look at for a further for a further. Marriage.
3: Has
2: there been any comment at the political level, like going back to that citizenship by adoption case, it seemed like part of the government's approach when the legislation was struck down was to almost argue like, okay, this Harpa era restriction on citizenship by descent is unreasonable we're not going to appeal. And I mean, I understand that the kafala prohibition kind of predates the Harper, or at least the prohibition of adoptions that don't sever the parental biological parent relationship predates the ERPA. But it sounds like this kafala policy towards Pakistan, at least, is a Harper era policy. Has there been any comment by the current government on this?
3: Uh, there hasn't been any public comment that I'm aware of, um, and we, the NCCM, has been engaging in some political advocacy. We know that um, the government knows about it. It was raised very explicitly by a number of Muslim groups um, as a uh, something that's affecting a lot of our community members, and. This was, you know, it's not like something that's gone under the radar. There have been many, many high level meetings about this case, uh, about uh, sorry, this law um, and the prohibition. So the government is very aware. I'm not sure why there hasn't been political movement on it, because, as you say, it would be such an easy um, backstepping. Uh, Minister Hossein has engaged with the issue a little bit. And then five years ago, there was a Fifth Estate uh, investigation. And the government said it was going to review the policies, but we, they have been trying to see if a review has actually been done. And to date, they can't find evidence of a review being done, but that doesn't mean it's not there internally. So there hasn't been a lot of impetus to move forward. The one thing, I don't think this the facts are right for this constitutional challenge, but this case, uh, this bar has come up again in the context of Gaza um and a lot of children who need to be um you know need parents and I know there's been a big push from the Muslim community in Canada to see if there's anything that can be done and I know those conversations are happening it's not the perfect example for this case because um I think there are also some hurdles that have nothing to do with immigration but uh the government it's very much on their radar so I don't know why it's it hasn't been an easy fix I know that um, there's some talk of a um, uh, a bill potentially. And so that will be interesting to see. Government
2: there's, or private member?
3: Um, it would probably be a, uh, it, it may be a Senate bill, yeah. um, but I don't, it's not even at the stage of, you know, being neatly defined. I think people are just looking into it. Um, mm-hmm. and just trying to understand why anything hasn't been done. So there's a lot of different things happening at the same time i think um the litigation you know if there's an election next year like what it happened what happens to the litigation i don't know um but we just are interested in getting it resolved like however if it's political advocacy fine if it's like a senate bill fine if it's litigation fine it just is completely ridiculous that children can't be with their parents because of this very i
5: think it's always the fact
4: though when when a policy is so gravely offensive it has the effect of of sort of silencing community movement in some ways because people are just so busy being hurt and shocked that I think what you're doing is so I mean that's why it's so um laudable because like to try and like it's almost it's almost like um designed to paralyze (laughs) that's how I feel about it anyways because like people get paralyzed when they're like when they're and, and this is sort of something that steve and i have been talking talking about in the context of the lee decision and all this like when you start seeing like claims of espionage against like 16 year old university students people just start withdrawing applications you know because it's like where do you go like the 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 enormity of the offensiveness sometimes gets just so large that yeah i mean this
2: is even more explicit because i think it was somewhere on the ircc website where it's just like we don't recognize adoptions from pakistan
4: yeah exactly Um, it's so um, overt that it's like what like it just it becomes part of the common narrative and the idea of picking that up and being like uh no no we're not going to do that is yeah yeah
3: yeah on that um there's a, 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 someone I really respect in our immigration refugee bar. And uh, we had a chat this week and she was saying, um, we, you know, she's a member of the Muslim community. And she's like, you're just so used to just being um, beat down a little bit. (laughs) Like you're just like, well, I guess this is just how it is. And like, how are we going to troubleshoot to get past this? And like you say, Deanna, there is this like, you almost develop a complacency by like all these little pieces of things happening, um, in your community or that your community faces. But I think it's really important to not become complacent when you can, like sometimes people just don't have the space for it. And actually I should, you know, on this, my sister, when she adopted initially came to me, um, and was like, can you believe this? Isn't this crazy? Like what's happening? And she was just so worked up, but that was too close to the bone. Um, And it was uh, this was like she was adopted 2017, mm-hmm. yeah, 2017. And like I just didn't have like I had to withdraw. Like I just had to kind of. It was like a family matter. It was too personal. It was too. It's too enormous.
4: much about you, like a finger, yeah, like you're directly yeah. in your face, and you're yeah, like, ah. yeah. And
3: so completely by happenstance, these clients came across my desk, like it was um, Celeste Shanklin's client initially, and she did a great job on the initial stuff and she had the, the timing of the scheduling wasn't working out. And then, and then when the case came, I said to the clients, like, why don't we consider agency options, humanitarian options? There might be, you know, some exemptions we can use. And it what it was their insistent, like they were so offended by this. Yeah. Um, and he was as the... they
4: should be it's yeah as they should be and it sort of helps you mobilize that like yes that's right like the fact that canada and like the team of lawyers is sitting there mobilizing an argument to defend this policy like it should shock the conscience of canadians that's my view like and so um yeah anyways
2: so the way I originally stumbled into Kafala was I was looking at a translated, uh, so the, the clients kept saying that they had adopted someone, and I was looking at a translated document from Iran, and I remember asking the clients, being like, oh, I think your translator used the wrong, could you ask the translator to change this from guardianship to adoption? And they were like, well, no, it's Kafala. And that's kind of how I stumbled into the whole thing, not realizing that it was a separate A whole separate kind of regime, and that they couldn't just change it to adoption. So, what, like, if you're a practitioner or a, you know, your immigration consultant, a lawyer, a ghost lawyer that you hear all the rage about in the media (laughs) lately, what, um, what should you be on the lookout for? Like, is it every Muslim country has kafala? Is it if there's any, adoption from an Arab country that you may encounter this issue? Like what should practitioners or people be looking for?
4: So
3: they will typically get a letter that talks about the severance between the parent child, um, uh, relationship. It's not all Muslim countries. It's the majority of Muslim countries. Um, so Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, um, I think Indonesia, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, those are the ones that come to my head right off the top, but there are, I'm definitely missing three or four. Um, So it's definitely those countries. Uh, Morocco has a two stream process they have a civil process and a um, religious process. And so from Morocco, Canada recognizes them. That's the only Muslim country that I know that Canada will recognize from because they have this completely separate process. so I would look out for that. I would look out for clients from those countries. Any Muslim majority majority country beside Morocco is my experience so far. Um, usually it'll be a letter that talks about the severance. There's also sometimes a reference to um, uh, severance, but not 3-2 specifically. So I think it's 117. Um, so... Yeah, you'll you'll see it pretty clearly what they're saying is if there's a letter, if there's a procedural fairness, if there's like a huge delay in getting the initial uh, response and it's beyond the processing time, you may want to um yeah. you know, get whatever. But you're-
2: even um before that, like if you have clients who are just immigrating and they're saying, "Oh, like if they're from Iran or Pakistan and they're saying, "Oh, this is our adoptive daughter who's going to be joining us in our express entry application." at that stage, someone should know either that this is kafala, or if their yeah. document says guardianship, like it should, yeah. people should kind of, whoop, there may yeah, be exactly. an issue here. Yeah,
3: yeah, we're sorry. So even going back further, right from the intake state, um, if you are dealing with a family where there's an adopted child, that's not biological right off the bat, um, that that might trigger issues down the road. Um, And then once the client is on notice for those potential issues, hopefully this won't be <laughs> probably too much longer but for now once the client is on notice for those issues then um you know you have to decide what's best for the client so for a number of our clients like they don't want to be they don't want to be in this fight it's not right for them and so we look at um temporary resident permits which even though they're long and they're discretionary um they they are there we uh have seen some successful de facto recognitions as well. So if the facts are really, really, really good and you can establish like, you know, the, the adoptive parent is on school records and there's photo evidence and like great affidavits then de facto might be the right um, avenue for, for those families. And we certainly have families in our office after this case. Who have not put through this, um, you know, the sponsorship or Regulation 3.2, and we're just sidestepping that altogether and asking for de facto.
4: Um, Yeah, I mean, that's something that I would say, and I don't wish to at all throw any, um, like, I understand the very distinctness of the issue about the impact on Muslim families, but I think for people that are handling any cases involving adoption, it's really critical that you look at the foreign legislation um, and just because there's a court order doesn't necessarily mean you have an adoption that Canada is going to consider a valid legal adoption. So um, this came, I mean, I've dealt with this, um, I did one appeal many years ago, um, uh, you know, that, that dealt with this issue, but also, um, you know, I'm seeing this in this case that I'm dealing with from Cambodia and when I was doing research about this, there are many countries that have different types of adoption and lack of access to a full adoption that severs all legal ties, Um, like the DRC. And there's like a whole handful of countries that like, make it impossible for a full legal adoption that severs all ties. And again, I think that some of those countries, it's always sort of looked at by IRCC as like, this is something lesser than as opposed to that those actually have done it deliberately knowing that actually severing the ties is not in the best interest of the child it's a more sophisticated system not a less a lesser than and that's why I love the equality argument that you're doing that they've done that because an older child should not have that thing severed because they may have formed some relationship with the child and so I think, you know, getting people to go back and look at the legislation, don't take it face value that you've got an adoption certificate, now you can just put through an adoption application. Um, you really do need to go and do that um, that research because there's a whole bunch of cases saying, nope, you've gone through this whole thing and now we think that it's not a severing and therefore the application is rejected. Yeah,
3: yeah. And I think it's really important um, for families that we now through this case have come across in their are affiance in our case, um, families who are considering adopting and are looking into what that process might entail mm. uh, in the case of a number of Muslims uh, Muslim Afians that w- are in our case, they're saying, like, I would love to adopt a child from Pakistan. I'm from Pakistan or from Iran. I'm from Iran, but I know what that's going to entail. So I'm actually going to adopt a child from Morocco um, who doesn't share my, you know, ethnic origin because at least I can bring them here I think those are really painful conversations but it's like thank god they're thinking about that right now and yeah you know I think that's a very different predicament than someone who's actually gone on and done it and formed that bond with the child and given this child home, and then right. um, bring, but them to
4: bring them there's also a sadness to that too because I mean adoption is challenging and I mean I say this my husband's adopted and the idea of like then being, I mean, like not having those links to your like cultural origins and your cultural ties, that's not insignificant, right? Um, To having somebody who shares your cultural, like your ethnic roots, like I think that that is beneficial to the best interest of the child. And so, you know, just saying, Oh, well, this is going to be too inconvenient. So I'm going to look to a different place. And, you know, um, that's not neutral. And so the fact that the legislation is forcing them to do that, I think contributes to the the discrimination argument that you're advancing under section 15, because like, that is not in the best interest of the child. And I think you know, I'm, I'm sure that there is research about some of the impacts of cross cultural adopt- adoptions. That it can, especially when it insists that you sever those ties to the biological family. Like adopted kids have, like a lot of like, where do I come from and who are my like? They need that. It's it's grounding for them. And so, anyways, I have a lot to say on this subject. <laughs> As most, you're giving me great ideas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. honestly, I think that, um, you know, there's so much stuff about, um, about, I-, I think about cross-cultural adopt- adoptions, that forcing people to lose those connections, I think, is, is not good. And I think that the challenge that you're looking to advance and um, redefining how Canada has said that we need to... Um, Abide that wording of section three sub two, I think is what it is. It privileges a certain model of what a family is, as you said from the outset. And I don't even know that that's a good family model. <laughs> like, and that's, that's not that one that we, yeah, yeah, that's, that's not yeah. we wanted. That. No, it's not one that's supported by psychology, it's not one that's supported by the family courts. Like, it is completely out of step with our. with the current model of positive, um, supportive adoption. So, like, that's, uh, like, you know, I think it's brilliant, and I think it would impact, certainly, the Muslim community in, in, like, primarily, but I think the impact would be broad-based and affect um, people, like, benefit people all all around the world. Anyways, I, I would love to be a fly on the wall <laughs> all through this and listen to you making these arguments. Nobody I can think of would be better to do it, Wanda. I'm really I'm really excited that uh, that you're taking this on. I know it's going to be hard for you. So anything we can do to support you along the way, uh, we're we're cheering for you. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinns.